Well, if you have a Bible, if you wouldn't mind turning to Matthew chapter 8. We're going to title this message today, Surely Calvary Brings Healing and Deliverance. Amen. Be our message. So we're going to read the first 17 verses in Matthew chapter 8. And beginning in verse 1, it says, When he was come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you will or wilt, you can make me clean. And Jesus put forth his hand and touched him and said, I will be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said unto him, See you tell no man, but go thy way, show thyself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lies at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this man, Go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes, and to my servant, Do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard it, he marveled, and said unto them that followed, Truly I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel." But I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, go thy way. As you have believed, so be it done unto you. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. And when Jesus was coming to Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother laid and sick of a fever, and he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and ministered unto them. And when the even was come, the evening, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick. That it might be, here was the purpose, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, himself took our infirmities, and bear our sicknesses. Most of us in here, all of us in here, I would say at one time or another, there might be a few exceptions in our lives, have been sick. And some of us have actually been sick to the point of death. And, you know, we look around and it just seems like everybody gets colds, gets the flu, hundreds of other types of illnesses. And... Almost everyone in our society knows somebody that has died of cancer, brain tumors, heart failure, or just a lot of terrible illness. And, you know, nobody likes it. Nobody here, nobody anywhere likes the fact that those kind of things happen. But typically, we don't think it's odd that you hear somebody's had some kind of diagnosis. I'm saying outside of our church, okay? So that's what I'm talking about. And most Americans, most Americans will accept the modern medical science reports that all sickness basically medical science will say everything's ex explainable you know it's due to some kind of a biological they'll say some kind of a biological cause you know whether it's germs microbes bad genes or a mosquito bite but they're saying there's be some way we can explain it you know naturally or scientifically and people think well why should we question the scientists I mean they've got a lot of learning they've been to all these years of school they're the smartest people on the planet generally they really are and they see what they see under those microscopes and facts are facts and that's kind of the way they look at it facts are facts but for us the Bible presents a different picture of sickness and healing that is taught us as we grow up in the world at least when I grew up in the world, I was never taught what the Bible taught as far as sickness and healing went. And so we here in America, Americans tend to put all their faith in science and technology. I mean, more, really honestly, more so than anywhere else in the world. We put all of our faith in science and technology, generally. And so if someone has a mental problem, what is the, the problem with that? They'll say they have a salt imbalance. They have some kind of a chemical imbalance in their brain and it needs sophisticated drugs to deal with it. I mean, that's generally the way a lot of mental illness is dealt with, with a lot that keeps the drug companies busy and profitable, and, and that's the way things are dealt with. 
But what about the Bible? How does the Bible say about psychological disorders? Because they had a major psychological disorder going on in Mark chapter 5 with the Gadarene demoniac. And this man was filled, the Bible says, he didn't have a salt imbalance. He was filled with a multitude of spirits that were causing his problems, right? And that's what we read there. And the answer, according to Mark chapter 5, was not medication, was it? Because what was the answer? The answer was the presence and power of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he saw that. That man had enough in him left, even though he was totally possessed, to come and kneel and worship. And he saw Jesus was his only help, his only cure. And so the Bible cure, I would say, to be delivered in his case from those strong spiritual forces, is the Bible cure is a person and God's spirit. We read it said himself. The Lord himself carried our sicknesses and delivered us. So in countries today that are poor and they don't have all the free and available medical treatment like we have in the United States, but these are books they had me read at my seminary, my Baptist seminary, about admissions classes. This is just the way it is currently, that who's having the greatest success in missions, like, say, in South America or Asia? And this is where people, like I say, they don't have access to free medicine and all that. It's the spirit-filled Pentecostal Christians. Because these people, they'll have somebody that has a case like the Gadarene demoniac. That is not unusual in a lot of places. And it's just subdued in America, even though we still even have some cases that are similar to that. What will happen is they'll go to these missionaries that don't have the Holy Spirit, and those missionaries will tell these people, look, if you need help, you need to go down to the Pentecostals, and they will pray for you, and you'll see results, and they do. And guess what that does is these people realize then they are open to the gospel message of repentance because they see the Lord Jesus Christ has a power that no one else has. It's greater than the witch doctors, and they get truly saved. And... Pentecostalism in, in those South American countries is thriving because of that very thing, at least the ones that will believe the Bible and pray. And so as we look at this section today in Matthew's Gospel, I want to see, I want us, or like the Lord to show us, that the Bible's answer to, to the question of healing deliverance is found in the cross of Calvary, which is what we're going to be celebrating today in our communion service. So you know, the death of Jesus, we know it brought us forgiveness, but it brought restoration, we know, of everything we lost in the fall, didn't we? <laughs> didn't it? That's what the cross did for us. We have to realize that when we were sinners, we made ourselves subject to the powers of darkness and Satan, made ourselves subject to his power, oppression, and influence. And so what is the gospel? What is it that Jesus came? We were all, it says, in the devil, in his kingdom subject to him. And the good news of the gospel is, what did Jesus come preaching? He says, I'm here to preach another kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God that can deliver you from that kingdom that is oppressing you, that kingdom of darkness. And what he did, he said, this kingdom is light. It's truth. It's holiness. It's peace. And this kingdom is health. Just the opposite of the kingdom of darkness. That's what he's presenting to us, isn't it? And so we sing the song, the Lord Jesus Christ has come and preached the gospel, and he's opened up the gates of righteousness to all of us, to anyone that wants to walk in through those gates. And how are those gates opened? It's through his blood. Amen. That's how those gates were flung open. So we're, we're in Matthew chapter 8, but I didn't want to spend the time to look into this, but it's very interesting. There's more structure than we realize to the Gospels. They're not just biographies like we would read a biography on Thomas Edison, say. And so Matthew chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8, and 9, they are bracketed by statements that said Jesus went and preached the Gospel, preached the kingdom, taught the people, and healed. And that's what you have in between Matthew chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 9, there's two verses there. I didn't want to take the time to go. And so it's like a sandwich. And in between that, it shows how all that was displayed in his earthly ministry. So what we have, we know the Sermon on the Mount. We've been taught that. And so in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, Jesus talks about the life and ethics of his kingdom, the people that live in his kingdom. And then that power, the power that enables us to live that and to show that this is God 
speaking these words, the power is demonstrated, the power to live in that kingdom. The power of the kingdom is demonstrated in what we just read in Matthew chapter 8, and it goes on in Matthew chapter 9. And so I would raise the question, why is that important? Why can't we just have ethical teachings? Because I know people that, to them, not in this church, but other people that I've talked to, to them, it's like Jesus just was a great ethical teacher. And that's the part of the Bible they like. In fact, Thomas Jefferson has his own version of the New Testament. And what he's done is taken a pair of scissors and gone through and cut out all the miracles. It's one you can actually buy. He actually did that. So he liked his ethical teachings, but how could you not? <laughs> They're true and right. But he said, I'm taking all the miracles out. He said they were made up. And that's the way a lot of people will approach the New Testament. But that is not the gospel, and that is not what the kingdom's all about. Because here's why it's important that that power be demonstrated in the life of Jesus, in the life of the apostles, and clear up into our life today. This is why it's important that we need to see the power of God demonstrated through the gospel. Because if Christianity is just a different system of truth, than the Muslims, the Buddhists, or whatever cult you want to pick up, then what would be the thing? It'd just be like, just pick the one then that makes the most sense to you, right? Because what would it matter? I mean, it's like all of them have a certain degree of ethical teaching, and you follow them, you're going to be a quote-unquote good person, all of those religions. But here's the thing. If Christianity has the true power of God and it can be demonstrated, what does that tell us in the world? Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. There is no other life. If that's true, and I believe it is, then there is no other religion on this earth that can give life and power and freedom from sin and the oppression of the devil. Only Christianity can do that. So the other ones, they may have a degree of truth, okay, but they are not the truth. They are not the life, and they are not presenting the one and only true God. And that's what we have in our Bible and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of that was demonstrated in the exodus from Egypt. That's what that was all about, the ten plagues. All of those ten plagues represented the gods of the Egyptians, things they worshipped. And God was demonstrating to the world through Egypt that he was the true God ruling over all other gods and over the entire universe because the magicians could only do so much couldn't they they could only follow Moses so far and not very far at all and then they had to stop and they realized and said this is the true power of God that Moses is being demonstrated that is the true power of God greater than anything they could do and that's what was being demonstrated. And when Jesus performed his healing, deliverance, and miracles, people were saying, we have never seen anything like this. Never seen anything like this. This is the power of God. Clearly demonstrated. And so when the apostles, after they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and, and they went forth and they preached, what do we read? Here's what we read. It's still important. And they went forth, the apostles, and preached everywhere. The Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following them. Amen. So God doesn't just give a word about the death, burial, and resurrection. He confirms that that word is true. That that power that is being talked about, preached about, that power of that resurrection, that power of that new life. He doesn't just make it to be in words. He makes it to be in literal physical, something that can see, be seen demonstration in healings, in miracles, in people being delivered, in people being set free, in true joy and peace on their faces. It's a reality. So chapter 8, verse 1 that we're looking at, it comes right after the Sermon on the Mount, like I said, chapters 5 and 7, where the Lord Jesus Christ, through that Sermon on the Mount, he teaches the principles of how we as citizens of the kingdom of God were to live. And so Jesus through there, just to give a quick summary, he talks about having a pure heart, a heart that is free of anger, lust, worry, and a heart that will love others. And he talks about doing religious works just to be seen of men and not doing things. We should do things to be seen of God. So he said that that should take place in your giving, 
in your praying, in your fasting. Do those things to receive rewards from the Lord, not from other people. He's saying that should be our motives. And he talks about entering in at the straight gate, about being judged by our fruits, and about, last of all, about being hearers and doers of the word. Why? So that we can have a, a strong foundation. It'll be critical for us in the days that are coming that we are people that hear and do the word that he gives us in whatever way he gives it to us. And so when Jesus was done saying all of that, look at the people's reaction. You're in chapter 8. Just look in the last few verses there of chapter 7. Verses 28 and 29 of Matthew 7, and it says this, that it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were, I mean, they were like, wow. They'd never heard anything like this. Astonished at his teaching. And why? For he taught them, and this is the anointing with the Lord that caused this to happen. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And they're like, we have never heard anything like this. And it could be said they never are going to see anything like what followed, which is where we're going to pick it up in chapter 8. So he's announced the terms in those chapters of living in the world under his lordship. And in essence, when you read that, you think, who could live that way? And it's true because it takes the grace and power of the Holy Spirit to enable us to do that. And he's going to show that, hey, that grace and power is available. And we know it is when we see the works that the Holy Spirit in him does, that it's still available to us. So we'll pick up in Matthew chapter 8, 1, first two verses, 1 and 2, and it says, When he came down from the mountain, great multitudes, great crowds followed him, and behold, it says, there came a leper worshiping him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. So out of those great multitudes that are following the Lord Jesus Christ, all of a sudden, here comes a surprise. And <laughs> Matthew's like... Why is it a surprise? He's saying, behold, here's these great multitudes. And he says, and behold, it's like, whoa, what is this all about? A leper. It's not a common sight. I'll tell you what, because a leper in the midst back then of a large group of people would have never been seen ever. You never would have seen a leper within a large group of people like that. Because leprosy wasn't a curable disease back then. And I'll tell you, the, the people would see how that disease would progress and where someone with leprosy would, went, would end up, and there was a dread and a horror of, of in any way getting near that person, and, and it was contagious. They were horrified by that. And a person with leprosy, they get near anybody. They had to cry out, unclean, unclean, to warn people. That was part of what they had to do, part of the law. Wasn't curable. Produced horror in the people of that day. And the only treatment was no treatment at all. They were given isolation. They were quarantined. That's the way lepers were treated. No treatment at all. They weren't allowed to live in towns and villages. And like I said, they had to keep their distance from people. They got near anybody, and they had to cry out, unclean, unclean. The reason I'm saying all that is a leper would have had very limited physical contact with anyone, and many times none at all because they were physically unclean, and not only that, they were also cut off from the religious community because of that, cut off from the worship of God like everyone else because they were also ceremonially unclean. And it says in the law that anybody that touches a leper, it was a sin. They were considered an unclean person to touch one. The Bible says it's in Leviticus 5.3. It makes you guilty, makes you guilty before the law. So the only touch, the only touch that this leper would have experienced, you know who it would have been from? Another leper, if any, if he received any touch at all. That's the only touch he would have had. But this leper, it says, and we see here in verse 2, it says, Behold, this leper came and worshipped him. You have to read the accounts in Mark and Luke to get what all that entails. But it, it says, this guy comes up and he kneels down and he falls on his face before the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he did and worshipped him. And that in the Middle East, that was a sign of respect and reverence. And he, he is on his face before the Lord Jesus because, for number one, he knows no one's going to be happy that he's there because they don't want him around. The people don't want him to. And that's the posture he would have taken. And what does he say to Jesus? He says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. 
So let's take the if you are willing off, and what are you left with? You can make me clean. And that word for can is our word dunamis. We talk about so much here. Power, ability. He says you have the dunamis. You have the power or ability to make me clean. So he has no doubt at all in his mind about the power and ability of Jesus to heal any disease. His only question is whether Jesus is willing to heal him. That's the question he has. Not his ability to heal disease. He would be like, you know, I heard, and maybe he saw, I saw you cast a spirit out of my friend, and he was a mess, but he's in his right mind now. Or Benjamin, I knew Benjamin over there was crippled and had never been able to walk. And you said, stand up and walk, and took his hand, and instantly he's right back to normal. I've seen what you can do. I've seen what you've done for these other people here. I know that you can heal anything, but the question, Lord, is, will you heal me? If only he's saying, you'll look on me. No one else will. A poor leper, I beg of you. He's on his face. Have mercy on me and asking, are you willing? That's the question. And it said, Jesus looked on him. And we don't have this in Matthew's account, but Mark and Luke said he looked on this leper and it said he was moved with compassion. Many times Jesus was moved with compassion. And he looks on this man's pitiful and miserable condition, bowing in the dust before him. That word for compassion is your guts, your inward parts. He's feeling it in here. I mean, like I said, the old worn out politician's phrase, I feel your pain. Jesus really did. He really was genuinely moved by this man's condition, not to get his votes, but it's God. You know, sometime we'll teach Isaiah 63, and in all your affliction, God told his people, I was afflicted. And anyone here that's going through something, that's what he would say. In all your affliction and all your suffering, God says, I'm not immovable. I'm not a God that just stands up there and looks down and doesn't care. He's saying, in all your affliction, I was afflicted. And Jesus says, is moved with compassion for this man in his inward parts and it's the same word compassion that talks about we, we talked not too long ago about the good Samaritan when he saw that man wounded and he's a dying man it said that's the heart of God coming out we said in that good Samaritan right it says he was moved with compassion and he took care of that man he didn't just leave him there and that's the Lord Jesus Christ he sees us and when we need his help in any way and he's not immoved by that if you're his child, and sometimes even when you're not. But he's moved with compassion. Our equivalent to that would be gut-wrenching. See, that, that scene was gut-wrenching. That would be our modern equivalent, that Jesus was moved with compassion when he saw that. And how was that compassion of our Lord manifested towards this man? We talked about he didn't have anybody touching him. And, you know, when you need comfort, that's the one thing you need when you're suffering, isn't it? Just a hand on your shoulder means a whole lot. And his compassion was manifested by a touch. So he, Jesus, places his hand against the law on an untouchable. He touched an untouchable. Probably made the Pharisees furious if they were watching that. And that man had never probably felt a hand of comfort on his head since he had this leprosy. And yet... Here we read in our Bible that God in the flesh reached out and touched him. That's what it says. Verse 3, he put forth his hand and touched him. So let me say, just put yourself, you're in a major trial. A lot of people have been in major trials. Say you've got a raging fever, or maybe you're going through chest pains, or whatever it is, a disease eating you up. And just picture yourself, you're laying in your bed. You feel terrible. And into the room walks the Lord Jesus Christ. And he walks up to you and, and walks in the room, comes up to your bed, and you say, Lord, if you're willing, if you will, you can make me clean. You can make me whole. You can heal me. And he would give you and look in your eyes and give you that compassionate look and say, I am. I am willing. I do will. And just imagine he put his hand on your head when you're feeling like you couldn't feel any worse. The Lord Jesus Christ. Just what happened to this man? He put his hand on his head and touched him and said, be healed. Be made whole. 
rise up and walk, get out of your bed. I'm telling you, if that happened to us, wouldn't we say the glory would fall and off come the covers, right? <laughs> That's what would happen. But you know, the English is a little wordier than the Greek because in the Greek, Jesus to this man, he put his hand on his head. He only spoke two words to that man. Two words in Greek. Thelo katharistati. Thelo means I am willing. Katharistati means it's a command. It means be cleansed. And think about that. Only two words from the Lord Jesus Christ and your trial's over. It doesn't have to be a long prayer when the Spirit of God's resting on you, right? When it's time for that healing. Two words and it's over. Your trial's over. Be cleansed. It's not a request. It's not a wish he's given. It's a command. Be cleansed from the Lord Jesus Christ directed to that leprosy. <laughs> and when God commands, we know that it happens, doesn't it? And so Jesus literally said to that leper, you be cleansed. <laughs> you be cleansed is what he told him. So he's speaking to that man's body. And guess what? That leprosy had to go, didn't it? Amen. We know it did. It had to go. Gone for good with two words from the Lord Jesus Christ. But listen, before he, he gave that command, you know what he did? He expressed his will, the eternal will of God. And so we see from this, God is not willing that anyone suffer sickness and be devastated by disease. Because in this, what we're seeing right here in this first part of Matthew chapter 8, Jesus forever answered the leper's question of his willingness to heal, didn't he? He said, Lord, if you're willing, and Jesus gave an answer to that. He says, I am willing. I am willing. I desire you to be well. And we know, we've heard many times here, Jesus never turned anyone away. Never once will you find that ever in the New Testament, that he ever turned anyone away that came to him. And so I would say for us today, the will and desire of God has never changed. It's still the same. He's still Jesus Christ, the same yesterday when he walked that earth. Today, he's the same, and he forever will be. He forever will be, I am willing to heal you. Well, let's be honest, I would just say, you know, all of us, we've all struggled with the question. He's demonstrated his power to others, and I have no doubt about that, we would say. But will he manifest his love and power to me? We all struggle with that, because the devil will make sure we, don't, we struggle with it. Well, he will. And I would just say, I think we all, all of us need, including myself, need to have our faith strengthened in God's willingness to extend his hand of power to heal us. We've got to have our faith strengthened in that. And we need to, again, see clearly that it is his will to heal. And that's what we're looking at today. And he is willing, he wants to, and he delights to heal us. We don't have to twist his arm. That's what we're seeing from the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have to see we're his children. God loves us. He really does. He loves us and wants to heal us by the power of his Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus. That's how God heals. And he wants to do that. I believe honestly here, I think that is, is that power is demonstrated in a few impossible cases that seem impossible to us. And we see it's beyond doubt that was the power of God came in a way we have not seen recently. That's going to be a great encouragement for others. It will encourage your faith because that's Bible. That's the way the Bible works. You know, we, we've heard the account of the woman with the issue of blood. And that's been taught on as an example of faith. That she comes up behind and, and she says, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I will be made whole. And it says that the power from Jesus went into her body. He's looking around. Who, who did that? Well, you know, she didn't just kind of come up with that on her own. Because if you'll go back a few chapters and read, it says that when he's in a crowd, as many as touched him were made whole. And I think she heard about that. And she says, thinking to herself, I've got this problem. Nobody can help me. The doctors can't help me. If I can just touch his garment, I've already heard that it works. She was encouraged by that. Yeah, I don't want to get too far off my topic because this isn't in my notes. But when I first got saved, I mean, I was addicted to cigarettes. And I hadn't smoked that long, but, man, I loved them. And I had that spirit, that nicotine spirit was alive and well in me, and I could not quit. My mom would offer me money. It didn't matter. But 
my brother-in-law, we both smoked together. We were smoking buddies, driving around doing heating and air conditioning. And he got saved and filled with the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden, I noticed he's not smoking. And I'd be like, George, how, how are you doing that? Because I can't do what you're doing. He's like, eh, it's just the Lord. That's my brother-in-law. <laughs> it's just the Lord. That's all the more answer I'd get out of here. That's just the way he is. <laughs> I'd be like, okay, just the Lord. All right, George. <laughs> you know. <laughs> but I'm, I'm making a point here. So the night I got saved, and my brother Joel had just gone out and bought me about 16 cartons of dirt cheap cigarettes from good old Kentucky. <laughs> And uh, I was looking forward to smoking every one of them, but uh, the day I got saved, I knew that God would deliver me. You know why? I, I knew he would because I knew he did it for my brother-in-law, George. And I knew he, I just knew he would. And sure enough, I went through deliverance that night, threw those cigarettes away, and to the disappointment of my brother, I told him I don't need your 16 cartons of cigarettes. He could not believe that. Never seen him that disappointed. Well, listen, so it was a little bit of a trial of faith. I had to walk it out for a day. The desire didn't leave. But I'm like, it's not just a matter of not smoking. God didn't birth me into this world with a desire for nicotine. And if the truth's going to set me free, he'll take that desire away. That's what he did for George. And so one day, the second day, all of a sudden, I realized it's gone. Wow. And it never came back. Amen. Now, the lady next to me, me and her were going to do one of these programs where you put a little thing under your pillow and it speaks to you and you quit smoking, so I didn't have to sign up for that program. That saved me about $100. But it took her about a week, and she noticed, and she says, you haven't smoked in a week, have you? I said, I haven't smoked in a week. And how did you do that? I said, it's the Lord. <laughs> I learned that answer from George. <laughs> but I think that'll happen here with healing. I think we see that it'll encourage us. We'll see, hey, God is, he is moving. He is real. He loves that person. They're part of my body. It's going to work. <laughs> so when it comes to healing, though, we, we've got God's will. Old and New Testament. I'm not going to give every scripture, but we know Psalm 103 says this. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not. We can't forget all of his benefits. He forgives all thine iniquities. That's an easy one, it seems. He forgives all thine iniquities, and he heals all of our diseases. That's his will. Psalm 103. James 5, is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall heal the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he's committed sins. So if sin has gotten you in your bad way, it's still, James does not say you have to just give up that it's obvious chastisement and there's no hope for you. No, he says if you've committed sins, he'll raise you up. And if you've committed sins and if you confess them and come clean, he says God will forgive you and he'll bring healing into your life. He will raise you up. That's what he's saying. And so the second thing I want to move on to here, we've talked about the leper, is that faith, we need to see that it's God's will for us, for us personally, not just in general. To heal us, but we also need to see that it needs to be faith in God's word alone. So look in verses 5, and when Jesus entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him, saying, Lord, my servant lies in whom sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said unto him, well, I'll come and heal him, because it's his will. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. But what does he say? Speak the word only and my servant will be healed. So this centurion, you know, it started off a hundred people were under him. It, it came to be, it could be more or less than that. You know, he was basically just like a captain of a group of soldiers, but he's coming. And here again, we've got a, a, an important man is begging. He's begging Jesus to come heal his servant. And in Luke's account, it, that servant wasn't just any servant in his house. He's saying it was a servant that was dear to him. Somebody he really loved, this centurion really loved this servant. And in verse 6, we read, he was in pain. My servant lies at home sick of the palsy, and it says grievously tormented. So he's near death, paralyzed, and in great pain. And some other versions give a little better picture. The ESV version says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, and he is suffering terribly suffering terribly. The NET says he's in terrible anguish. In the New King James, if you have that, it says he is dreadfully tormented. And so here, this situation, this picture, if you just take the time to think about what's being said, it is deadly serious. And watching that servant would be hard to look on him, is the picture you get. And he's probably lying on a bed, just writhing in pain, being tormented, probably moaning. 
And so this faithful, beloved servant of this centurion is being tormented by the devil. But Jesus, being who he is, he says, I will come. You've come to me. I don't turn anyone away. You're a Gentile. It doesn't matter. I will come and heal him. And, you know, to go into a Gentile's house, there's, there's a question whether Jesus was just being polite to him. A Jew could not go into a Gentile's house. It made them unclean. And that's probably why the centurion, his answer, there's a lot of humility in his answer. Because here he is, he's a man that is sent into that region to, to keep the peace, and he could have anybody do anything he wanted to. But it says in other accounts that he, he became to love the God of the Jews. And in Luke's account, it says that he built a synagogue for him, had a lot of respect, and probably had seen and heard the reports of the Bible. And so he probably also saw and heard the healings and miracles of the Lord Jesus. Or he very well could have been there when he heard and heard him preach that Sermon on the Mount. And he might have been one of those that saw, this man speaks like no other man I've ever heard speak. He speaks with authority, with an authority that comes from God. Maybe he thought he teaches like one of the prophets of old. So he's saying, hey, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. I don't feel worthy, but I know one thing. I know how authority works. And all I'm asking you to do is speak the word only. So I doubt that this centurion would have known that Jesus was God in the flesh come to earth. But what he did recognize is that here is a man that has an anointing that is unusual and given only from God that can he do and say the things he's doing. And he recognized that power and authority because he had been given power and authority from Caesar in Rome. And that's why he says in verse 9, when I tell somebody to go, they go. And when I say come, they come. And when I tell somebody to do it, it gets done. Because they all know that that Roman centurion has the power of Caesar and Rome behind every command he makes. And you don't want to mess with Caesar. He was literally called the Lord, Curios, which is what Jesus is called. He was presented as the Lord to those people at that time. And so he knows about authority, and he knows when Jesus speaks a word, it has the a power and authority of God behind it. And just like the things he says happen, he knows if Jesus says a word, it will happen. That's all he needs. Everything in the universe has to obey the word of God. So bringing that again home to us, what, what do we need? What do we need if we're suffering, if, if we have... a an illness that just seems like it's beyond him. Do we need Benny Hinn to come here? And some people, that's kind of where they're look, looking for things like this. A miracle worker, do we need to get a miracle worker, fly him in from California and bring him in here? Is that what we really need to, to receive our healing? Because that's the way they were with the Jewish people. Jesus said, unless you see signs and wonders or a sign and wonder worker, you will not believe. That's what he said, John 4, 48. Except you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And that's dangerous. All we need is his word. Now, if God wants to anoint somebody here or bring somebody here up, we're not talking about that, are we? If that's the Lord sending him. But to be looking for that or feeling like we need something more than his word, that's what we need is his word. And that only. So the centurion says, all I need is a word from Jesus. And he says, I can believe that. That's what he says there in verse 10. When he heard what he said, it says, Jesus heard what that man said about all I need is a word only, and I understand your authority. It says in verse 10 that Jesus did what? It said he marveled. That's a human thing because God doesn't marvel in that sense. But the Lord Jesus Christ is a man did, and he is marveling at what this man's saying. And the only other time... Do we know when Jesus marveled when that was? At the unbelief of the people of his hometown. He marveled at that too. But here he's saying, what he's saying is, I have not found so great a faith, but he says, no, not in Israel. And what he's saying is, it should have been in Israel. Because Israel, of all the nations on the earth, they had been given what? Speak the word only. They had been given that word. No one else had the word of God. And he's saying, if the word of God is where we get faith, and it is, of all the people on the earth, why was there none in that nation? There should have been. And instead, he's what? He's finding it in this Gentile, a Roman soldier, the greatest faith he's ever seen. He's marveling at this man's faith, a man that was not given the word. 
and not finding it in the nation that he was expected to find. So I'm saying, do we have, truly, do we have faith in the Word of God alone? And as Scott said, I'm not saying anything new today at all. These are just basic faith principles, the way faith works, nothing new. Romans 10:17 still says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. But here's the thing, it's just not a word that we trust. It's the Word of God that we trust. Not just any word, the Word of God. And so, if you will just turn over to Matthew 14, a few chapters, I want to look at something here. It's another familiar story. We're saying that all we need is a word, a word from the Lord. And so, Matthew 14, beginning in verse 25, we read this. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit, and they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be you, if it's you, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately... Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore did you doubt? And so Peter asked for a word, didn't he? And the, the centurion, the same way, he says, just speak the word only. And that is all Peter got was only a word. One word, right? Come. He got the word come. And guess what? He believed and obeyed that one word. And he gets out of the boat, and he's walking on the water, and as long as he's got his eyes on Jesus, the person that said that word, everything is fine, isn't it? Everything is fine. And what enabled Peter to walk on that water, I would ask the question, was it the word come, or was it the God who gave that word? Because I'll tell you, if another fishing boat had pulled up alongside, and one of the sailors had yelled out to Peter, come! And he got out of the boat, he would have sunk like an anchor. Immediately, wouldn't he? So it's just not that we have a word. It's like I said, it's the word of God that is backing that word. So there's a promise that we have, the word. There's the power. And there is the person behind it all. The Lord Jesus Christ. Promise, power, person, the Lord Jesus Christ. But what happened to Peter was his vision failed him. His spiritual vision, he's having problems with it. Because when he quit looking unto Jesus and trusting his word and began to look at circumstances, we know we just read what happened. He began to sink. And here's what happened. Natural reality, a reality of wind begins to blow in his face. And he's seeing this. The natural is starting to affect him because if you go outside, wind is a very powerful force and something you're not going to ignore, right? And it was affecting Peter, that wind and what he was seeing. What happened was it's affecting him more, this wind that he can see and feel and see the effects of. Now it's affecting him more than this unseen spiritual force that is more powerful than that wind, but it's an unseen force, the power of the Holy Spirit. That wind is affecting him more than the Holy Spirit. Both are unseen, but the effects of that wind are affecting him more than the fact that the Holy Spirit is enabling him to walk on the water. His spiritual vision's getting distorted. That's his problem. And so the promise in the word come, and that Jesus had it. That had to be an encouraging face he was looking at. Jesus wasn't giving him a stern look when he's walking towards him. <laughs> but all of that's fading, isn't it? Faded in the wind. And so Peter, he's losing it, and he starts to sink, and he cries out, Lord, save me. That's what he does. He cries out for help. And let me ask you, have you ever been in a trial where you're going along fine, and it's like only God is sustaining me, and all of a sudden the circumstances start overwhelming you? And you cry out to the Lord, please help me. Give me your grace. I want to trust you. And believe, he will do that for us. He's done that for all of us. That's the way he works. 
cry out for help. And here's the thing, Jesus won't let you drown. He won't let you drown in that trial. You're trusting him, and it seems like all of a sudden things were okay, but I am getting overwhelmed. I don't think I can hold on. Cry out to him for help. He won't let you drown. He's full of compassion. Isn't that what we talked about earlier? And so what about that man that had that epileptic son, loved that boy, and Jesus is saying, I just need some faith out of you. Just give me a little bit. And he's like, I do believe, Lord. Help thou mine unbelief. And Jesus is like, if I can do anything, I'll do whatever needs done. Just give me a little bit of faith. And he's like, Lord, just help me. And Jesus must have helped him and given him some faith because otherwise that boy wouldn't get delivered. And we know he did. And that's what the Lord will do. So Peter cries out and Jesus helped him. And it says he immediately stretched out his hand. It's the same hand that stretched out to help that leper. That same hand of compassion. And lifted him up out of that water. That's the way the Lord is. We don't have to get in the trial and start getting overwhelmed and think, well, I must not have faith. I'm just going to quit. No, call out to the Lord. He'll be there to help us. Because Jesus didn't get on him, did he? And maybe we tended to do that in the past with each other, somebody that's struggling in a trial. But Jesus didn't say, you worthless dog. What's wrong with you? No, was it say he said? He did say, oh, you of small faith, why did you doubt? But I think behind that he's saying, you know, couldn't you see, Peter? I was here all along. I wasn't sinking. I was right here with you. Couldn't you see that? Why'd you take your eyes off of me? Because I've told you, and he tells us, he would have told Peter, I've said I will never leave you or forsake you, whether you feel like I'm here or not, whether it feels like that wind's blowing more than my spirit to help you, I will never leave you or forsake you. He says, in all power, that's what he left him with in Matthew 28. All power in heaven and earth is given unto me. And he says, I'll be with you always with that power. And he would say to us, as he said to Peter, trust that. Trust that. And can we hear the voice of Jesus through this? So here's the word. We say we only need a word. The Spirit of Christ is what gave the prophets their writings. The Spirit of Christ is what motivated all the prophecies we have, all the words we have. God is one. And so listen, when it says in Exodus 15, 26, I am the Lord that healeth thee. Who is the Lord that heals? The Lord Jesus Christ. And it says in Psalm 107, 17 to 21, fools because of their transgressions and because of their iniquities are afflicted. And then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble and he saves them out of their distresses. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. And so who is the word that God sent to heal and to deliver people from their destructions? The Lord Jesus Christ is the, is the one. And we've already said James 5, 14 and 15. It says the prayer of faith will heal the sick and the Lord will raise him up. Who is that Lord that will raise him up? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And there he's given us, I just read four verses. Positive promises that the Lord Jesus Christ says, I will gladly, willingly, delight to do that for you. That's his promise. So if we can just trust the word of God for healing alone, then we can be with that centurion. The Lord can marvel at our faith and there's no reason. And like I said, though, if we're struggling, hey, there's no sin in struggling. There's no sin in feeling overwhelmed. Read the Psalms. David was many times overwhelmed and they're there for a reason. Cried out to God, help me. I'm being overwhelmed. My enemies are riding over my head. This situation's bigger than I can handle. And God helps him, and he'll help us. And that's what we saw with Peter. So the, the last thing we want to look at, back to Matthew chapter 8, is that sickness is of the devil and not God. That's the origin. And so we move on here to verses 14 and 15, and it says, When Jesus was coming to Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother laid and sick of a fever, and he touched her hand, and the fever left her. She arose and ministered unto them. So if you would, to see clearly that we're dealing with a spirit, turn over to Luke 4, please. Luke chapter 4, verses 38 to 41, the same account in, in Luke's gospel. In Luke 4, 38, we read this. He, Jesus, arose out of the synagogue and entered into Simon's house, and Simon's wife mother was taken with a great fever. And they besought him for her, and he stood over her, and it says he rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately 
she arose and ministered unto them. And now when the sun was setting, all they that had any sick with divers diseases brought them unto him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And the devils also came out of many crying out, saying, You are the Christ, the Son of God, and he rebuking them. So there we see he's rebuking devils. And that's what he did with the fever up in verse 39. Rebuking them, he allowed them not to speak, for they knew that he was the Christ. And so we know you don't rebuke a fever. You don't rebuke a temperature. It doesn't hear you. You rebuke things that people or spirits, beings that can hear you. That is the case. It always is in the, in the New Testament. And so we have that in Matthew 17, Mark 1, Mark 9, Luke 4, Luke 9. He rebukes spirits. And so what we're seeing through this is, who is the source of all sickness? Who or what is it? It's a spirit. Satan. He is the source. It's not microbes. It's not genetics. That may be what you see as far as the results of his affliction. But if you would turn to Job chapter 2. It would help us to see, I think, Job 2 is why I'm having us turn to that rather than just quoting what goes on here. But to me, Job 2 clearly shows the source of sickness. We're getting a behind-the-scenes glimpse of what goes on in heaven here. And in Job 2, beginning in verse 1, it says, Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said unto Satan, From whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord and said, Well, from going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And he is still doing that. And the Lord said unto Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him in all the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that fears God and hates evil. And still he holds fast to his integrity, although you move me against him to destroy him without a cause. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man has, he will give for his life. And the devil says to the Lord, But put forth your hand now, you Lord, and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to his face. But does God do that with his own hand? No, because we look in verse 6. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand. That the devil is the source of all sickness and oppression and mental anguish and all those negative. It's not from the Lord. Because if you think that, that it's from the Lord, that sickness is from the Lord, and a, not, not that people here would think that, but a lot of Christians do, and a cross to bear for the glory of God, you will not resist the devil. Listen to these verses in the New Testament. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. In Acts 10.38, another common verse, but listen to what it says. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. Those are the people he's healing and delivering. Oppression is from the devil, for God was with him. And in Luke 13, 16, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bowed together and in no wise could lift herself up. And Jesus said this. He says, ought. That is a word that means it's necessary. She should not be in a daughter of Abraham. She should never be left like this and be left to the oppression of the enemy. And so he says, here, the year of Jubilee has come. This woman can't lift herself up. She doesn't have scoliosis or whatever they call that. Well, that's how they would diagnose it today. He's saying, no, it's a spirit causing that. You can medically diagnose it any way you want to. And he's saying, that should not be allowed. And there again, we're seeing, he's telling us again, it's God's will, not that she stay like that. He's saying, ought not. That's a little Greek word that says it is necessary. One of the first Greek words they'll have you learn if you ever want to take Greek. Just a little word, but it's saying a whole lot here. Ought not this woman, shouldn't she be in a daughter of Abraham whom Satan has bound? That's not a genetic problem she has. It's not she lifted too many rocks. Or I think Brother Hamilton, you all say she's looking for nickels in the road, whatever, and it, it just stayed with her. She never could get back up. That's not what the, the Lord didn't say that. He says Satan has her bound. A spirit has her bound, whom Satan has bound for 18 years. He's saying, ought not this woman? It's the Sabbath. 
the Lord's Sabbath, a day of rest. Why should she, being a daughter of Abraham, have to walk around like that another day? When I, Jesus is the embodiment, not me, Jesus is the embodiment of the year of Jubilee, freedom, freedom to the captives. He's saying he loosed her right then, no more. Instantly, no more having to walk around like that. 18 years of that was enough, Jesus said. I'm here to heal, is what the Lord said. Go back to Matthew 8, and everything I've said this morning can be summed up in these last two verses that we read. Verses 16 and 17, and it says, When the evening was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick. Why? Verse 17, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. Himself, our Lord, took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. How did he cast out those spirits and heal those people? How did he do it? What does it say? We're back to what we've been saying all along. With a word, he did it. With his word, verse 16, it's right there. And so what is the basis that he was able to just speak this word and cause demons to leave and healing to take place? Who gave Jesus that authority that he could speak those words of life? And this is back to the title of my message. That all came from all his ability, authority, everything came because of the cross of Calvary. That's what it's all based in. And that's what verse 17 is telling us. The fulfillment, all this healing, all this deliverance, verse 17, this is the purpose that if fulfillment has taken place, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet himself, took our infirmities and bare our Sicknesses, it's the fulfillment, his life and ministry, the entire thing was the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. The healing that was taking place, the great gospel of the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, it's the gospel in the Old Testament, pointing to our Lord Jesus Christ, his suffering on the cross. And what it gives us, not just forgiveness, it talks about that, but it gives us healing, health. It gives us everything that the curse took from us, that our sin took from us. And he's saying, Matthew's saying by putting that there, that all this healing we just read about, Matthew chapter 8 and all through the gospel, is based on the finished work of Calvary, just like our forgiveness is based on the finished work of Calvary. So Jesus healed the multitudes, and I would hear this a lot at school, to prove his deity. And I would say no, because there's a lot of healings that took place that weren't by God, but it's because his atonement, his suffering on a cross, it paid the penalty for the curse and freed us. It freed us from oppression of the devil. And so now we know the price has been paid, hasn't it? The price has been paid for us, and we can experience now God's power of healing because of what Jesus did on that cross. Like I said, the year of Jubilee has arrived. And so how do we know that it's God's will to heal sinners? Or to forgive sinners? How do we know? We look at the cross. And when the leper wanted to know if it was God's will to heal him, we find that at the cross. What we have here in Matthew 17, himself took our infirmities. That's how that leper could know that it's God's will. The same way we can. We look to the atonement. We look to what God did on the cross. And so I would say, set your gaze on Calvary if you're sick, if you need healing, and see God's will. And behold there, God's compassion. It's right there on the cross. He loved us that much. He's willing to suffer that much, not only for our forgiveness, but to deliver us from any illness that we have, any oppressing spirit that we have. It's right there. Look at that on the cross. Jesus bore that curse for us on Calvary. All the plagues, all the curses, all the madness, the blindness, the botches in the legs, everything you read about, the poverty, everything you read about in Deuteronomy 28, that's the curse. It was all placed. He became a curse on our behalf. He took it all. Any curse the devil could put on you, he has no right because it's already been put and borne away by the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our scapegoat. And when they confessed their sins over that scapegoat and it was sent, guess what? Their sins were no longer there to be seen. They were off in the wilderness, into no man's land, because that scapegoat was never found. And it's the same with our illness. We have to see that. We have to look to the cross and see that this thing that's on me, it, it has no right here. It's been put on him there and borne away by our Lord Jesus Christ. And he will make that a reality in our lives if we'll trust him to do that. 
And so the centurion could see that Jesus had authority given him from him, from Almighty God. And he says, all I need is a word, only a word. And I'm saying, Isaiah 53 has given us that word. It's right there. Look, look over there on that board. What is the very first word we see up there? That's the word we need. And that's the word God has given us. It points to the cross. That surely, that one word points to the certainty of Calvary's healing that will come to us. Surely. It's written bigger than any of the other ones I noticed. I hadn't looked at it here lately. And I'll tell you, that, here's what I found out about that word surely. It is a very strong, assertive word in Hebrew. And what it's doing, it's given to contrast what was previously said, said right before that with what is said now. Listen to this. Here's what was written right before that surely. That is verse 4. At the end of verse 3, this is what we read. He said he was despised, Jesus, on the cross, and we esteemed him not. Another way of saying that was we considered him insignificant or we held him of no account. So right before that, surely it says we held Jesus of no account. And Isaiah is saying, wait a minute. Uh-uh. He's not of no account. Surely this one we think of as no account is of great account to us because he has borne our pains and carried away our sicknesses. Is that of no account? Isaiah would say, that's what that surely is saying there. No, no, no. He's not insignificant. We may have esteemed him that way, the people that saw it, but oh no, surely it's not that. Surely it is. This is our great savior, our great deliverer. That's what's coming out of that. <laughs> He's God's great remedy for sickness and deliverance. And so that surely tells us we no longer have to doubt. That's the willingness of God right there. That's the one word like Peter, come, it's the one word we need. Surely, we just have to get that emblazoned. Surely, truly, something we can count on more than the rising of the sun is what that word's telling us. God will back it up. Amen. And so last, we know that sickness is from the devil. We talked about that. His power over God's people was crushed. But where was that crushed? You know what I'm going to say. It was crushed at Calvary. That's where the power of the devil was crushed, at the cross. And how do we know that? How do we know that that's the case? Everybody knows John 3.16. But right before John 3.16, we have John 3.14 and 15. And here's what that reads. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so what is that referring to? Why this talk about a serpent being lifted up? What is the deal with a serpent? So in Numbers 21, if you remember what happened in that story there that he's referring to, they're wandering in the wilderness and the people stop, start complaining. They don't like the lack of water. They don't like the direction they're getting. They don't like the manna. And in doing that, they complained against Moses and the Lord and they sinned. And so because of that sin, it says God did what? He sent in fiery serpents. That means they're bite was painful and was having bad consequences. Sent that fiery serpent in amongst those people. They're getting judged. A curse is coming on them. And it says many of them died. Many of them died as a result of that bite of that serpent. And But the people, here's what we have. They, they had to get things right first. And it said they came and confessed their sin to Moses. And they begged him. Oh, we confess we were wrong, Moses. We beg you, pray to the Lord. And what was the answer? The Lord told Moses to make a serpent of brass and put it on a pole. And it says this, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looks upon it, that person shall live. Only a look. And I've been saying we just need to look at the cross. That's where we got to keep our gaze. We got to be like Peter when he was walking. He looked at that word that surely keep your eyes on that and not on your circumstances. Because the serpent represented Satan because of our sin. And because of our sin, what has he done to us? He's been allowed to bite us and oppress us with sickness and demons. And what is the cure? It's the cross. He's been nailed to the cross. All of his power was crushed. So we know it said, God said, there's going to come a time when that serpent is going to hurt your heel. But he said, you will crush his 
head. And that's what happened on the cross. The Lord Jesus Christ crushed the head of the serpent. He no longer has power over us. His sting has been taken out. We no longer have to allow him to oppress us with sickness and demonic oppression or anything else that's under the curse. It's been taken away. And so we sing the song here, I look to you, don't we? You are my healer. To me, that song is referring to, and it says, all who look to you, all who look, because Israel, as long as they were looking at, that, at the serpent, guess what they couldn't look at? Themselves. And so that was the condition, and it's still the condition. He's saying, you can't look on that cross, you can't look on that surely and still be looking at your symptoms. You've got to keep your eyes there. He said, as many as had looked on that serpent lived. So the ones that chose not to look for whatever reason, or they're looking at how their illnesses, they've lost it. The faith has to be in that surely. So God has placed sickness on Jesus as the cross. We're just going to finish with it. And Satan has no right to place it on you and me now. We've been set free, amen? We really have. <laughs> so we'll look once more time. We'll read verse 17. It says that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Himself, healing is in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. He bore, took our infirmities, and bare our sicknesses. And Jesus, just like He's done for the leper, just like He did for the centurion's servant, just like He did with that raging fever in Peter's mother-in-law that we read tonight, He will do the same for us today. Amen? He's never changed. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? Amen? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, for the, the sure word that you've given us. And also, Lord, we just thank you that you've given us your unspeakable gift, the Lord Jesus Christ, and what all he's brought to us. And through his blood, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin, but also, Lord, the healing of our bodies deliverance from demonic oppression, from anything that the curse would bring that we had allowed through our sin, that you've given us forgiveness and thus opened the door for your blessings to come back on your people and that we can know you and walk with you. We just thank you that you've done that. We thank you for the, the price that you paid. And Lord, I just ask that you'll allow all of us to have our eyes open that we can expect your healing power to come and know that you love us and you will heal us and you will have compassion on us. And you'll help us in our faith. You'll help us, Lord, if we're struggling with our unbelief. You've, you've clearly shown us that, that you do love us and care about us, your people. And we just thank you for that, that you've shown us today from your word. In Jesus' name, amen.